0: Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to to read it together, to hear from you. And we pray, Lord, that your love would fill us, that your spirit would fill our hearts to overflowing, that we'd have understanding of what you're saying, that we would walk in your ways and bring honor and glory to your name. Thank you, Lord, for everyone here today, and we pray that you would minister to our hearts as we look forward to, to eating together. May we also look forward to hearing from your word, to feeding on your faithfulness, to receiving the truth you have that will sustain us and guide us and protect us as we follow Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the body that we are in Christ and that we're new creations through him. And pray we would receive your encouragement and strength today in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 5, if you'll turn there. Through this study, we've really emphasized, or the scripture has emphasized, the deity of Christ, how we're complete in Him. There's some warnings against false teaching and following after the traditions of men. And that when you're born again, that's evidenced in real life change and in the, in the roles that you are, in, whether in society or in family, the way that you work, the way that you interact with people, that we're to put off sin. We're to be renewed in our mind and put on the new man, which is created after Christ, a person who resembles Jesus. So when you're born again, you're a new creation. You're now part of the body of Christ. And your new life, it's Jesus in you that resembles Jesus. So his love, his forgiveness, and grace, that begins to flow out of our lives as we obey him. Instead of the law governing us, telling us what we are to do, we are now led by the love of Christ that guides us. It's that ligament that connects us to the body and to the head. And our faith, it's demonstrated through obedience as in your role as a wife or a husband or as a single person, as children, servants, and masters. Paul's a prisoner, and he's writing to this church that he's never met to encourage them. And that's such a good example to us that he was fulfilling his calling There was this growing persecution of the church in these times, and there were many deceivers and false prophets in the world. Maybe there's a tendency in the people to isolate, to become a bit insular, to have an an us-and-them mentality, and to almost cut themselves off from the world that God has called us to be in and to engage with so that Jesus will be known, so sinners would be saved, because Jesus went to seek and to save sinners. That was the calling that God had placed upon him, primarily going to the lost sheep of Israel. Paul, who wrote this book, he was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. So God sent him to the Gentiles to proclaim his truth. And Paul's love of Christ, it caused him to develop relationships wherever he went. And we're going to see as we read that he had this vast network of people that he connected with and that he was in fellowship with from all different ethnicities and cultures. And in our day where church is comprised of many denominations and maybe even some sectarian divisions, in a world of, that's darkened with sin, where people are blinded to the truth, we are to walk in light and love. We hold, fa- we hold fast to the scripture, but we walk in the way that pleases the Lord. And Paul's life illustrates Our relationship with God results in relationships with people. Lasting, enduring, fruitful relationships. And loving God and loving people, it's an investment of energy and time. And praise the Lord, he's given us time and the resources to invest in what will last. So Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one." The context of this, Paul has just laid out some roles in, as believers, what God requires of us, what we're responsible for before him, uh, wives, husbands, children. And he says, walk in wisdom with those who are outside, who are outside the fellowship, who don't know the Lord, who aren't uh, following Jesus. These are people they would come into contact all the time, whether in the markets or family, everyday situations. And they were to view every, every time they met with people outside as an opportunity to seize, to impact them with the truth of the gospel, to speak in a way that honored God. Because we don't have to say the name of Jesus Christ for our words to be, seasoned, words to be with grace and seasoned with salt. This word redeeming, it means to buy up, ransom, or rescue from loss. No conversation needs to be a waste. You don't need to walk away and go, oh, I could have said something about God there. You, you have an opportunity. Every time you open your mouth to say something that honors God, to say something that brings, it redirects the picture to him. Believers were to conduct their business with integrity. They were to be genuine and uh, G- genuine and generous and god may ordain even one chance for you to make a difference in the life of an unbeliever that this may be the only time you would see that person and he might have words for you to say which would impact them for eternity by your kindness as you walk in wisdom these gracious words have you ever seen a person who is gracious in victory or defeat It's always impressive when you see that. There's no, like, chest bumping and, um, you know, self-adulation, boasting, pride. Instead, when they're complimented on the great win, they redirect that compliment and compliment their opponent. They go, he played a really good game. She really, it was really tough because she played so well. So they don't receive it for themselves. They're gracious. They show favor to those um, even that they were opposed to. And our speech always ought to be with grace. That's one thing that made an impact in Jesus. Uh, And it says in Luke 4.22, when he spoke in the synagogue, it says, So they all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Like, wow, listen to that. Could that be the same person that's related to Joseph? Like we don't know how Joseph was, but they were like, wow, these gracious words. Where did he learn to talk like that? Where did he learn to be so gracious in his speech? It wasn't just the content of the words that amazed them. It wasn't just that Jesus was knowledgeable, but it was how he said those words. He said them in a way that impacted the people. And they said, what gracious words we have heard today. And our words, it says, are to be seasoned with salt. They're to be flavored with the reality of our new birth. Because the Spirit of God lives within us, because the Word of God, as we've read, dwells richly in us with all wisdom, our words start to take on a distinct flavor. The Word of God begins to come through the things that we speak. There's people who have questions about God, and they are not wanting to be our next target if we're boastful if we're arrogant, if we're just spouting off what we think and what we think about other people, and there's no grace being shown. Is someone going to volunteer to be the next whipping boy of that conversation? Like, you've already told me what you feel about this and what you feel about that, and, and I have a question, but you're not the person I want to talk to. Jesus was that kind of person. Remember Nicodemus? He was a Pharisee. And for fear of the Jews, he met Jesus at night. But I believe that he had been quite happy to meet Jesus during the day. It said that he met for fear of the Jews. He was concerned about how other people would be judging him. But it was the gracious words of Jesus that were inviting, that made him seek an audience, that, that made him dare to ask, hey, could I meet with you? Can we have a conversation privately about these things? He was welcome and free to express his mind, to ask questions and to say, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him. If you eat food flavored with salt, how does it affect you? It can make you thirsty, right? Those nice hot chips, you're looking for a drink. Well the gracious words of Jesus, flavored, seasoned with salt, it it caused him to thirst for more. He wanted to hear more about what Jesus had to say. He didn't want to hear what other people had to say about Jesus. He wanted to hear from Jesus. Speech seasoned with salt, though, it doesn't mean salty. That's a term that I think it's pretty much a gaming term, but it means you're angry. If you're a bit salty, you're a bit angry. You're a bit annoyed. Too much salt, it overpowers food. It can make it inedible. If you were to empty the whole salt shaker in, You'd say, I'd rather not eat than try to eat that. That, That's going to make me sick. If we give vent to anger, it's kind of like we are dumping the salt. We are not being gracious, and it's not palatable. People cannot receive that. You wouldn't receive that. Without salt, food can be flavorless and bland. And if we only say nice things, and we omit the truth of God's word which can be sharp, it's to be sprinkled in, not, not to attack people. But when we speak words that are gracious and the word of God is, is sprinkled in there, uh, the truth of God's word, it will make an impact and people will want more. It will lead them to the living water, Jesus Christ. Because that's the water that he gives, right? Jesus said, if you come to me and you're thirsty, I'll give to you living water, which is the Holy Spirit. So, sprinkle words of thanksgiving and grace and gratitude. Mix the scripture in with the things that you say, just all the time. Not trying to get a rise out of people, not pushing people's buttons, but just because this is who you are. The word of Christ dwells in you richly now, because you're his and you're in the word. Verse 7. Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. With an isthmus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will make known to you all things which are happening here. This begins an extended section of Paul. He's identifying other believers in the church, fellow laborers in the gospel. Tychicus, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20. It says that he had brought a gift with Paul from the churches in Asia to the church in Jerusalem. He delivered the letter by Paul written to the church in Ephesus, as well as this letter to the Colossians. He calls him a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. And it's likely the believers in Coloss did not know Tychicus, but Paul sent him for a purpose because Paul was in chains. He couldn't go and deliver the letter himself. He sent him to communicate how Paul is doing, so to share what Paul was going through, to inquire about their welfare. So not just to talk about how Paul's doing, but to see how they were doing and also to comfort them. And this is one purpose that God has made us one in the body of Christ, that we can comfort one another. We should receive comfort from one another. It may be that God would use a foreigner or a stranger to communicate comfort to you. And God may call you to communicate that to someone else, someone that you don't even know yet, that He wants to com- see others comforted by your gracious words, by you inquiring about how they're doing. Let's be willing and open to receive comfort from God. Sometimes when we're hurting, we don't even, we almost refuse comfort because we're hurting so bad. We're like, ah, that's no good for me. But that's what we need we need comfort from God. And he supplied it. So let's receive that and be a willing vessel that he gives it to others. Anismas he sent along with Tychicus. He's also a faithful and beloved brother. Who is one of you? Now, Anismas is an interesting case because he's a fugitive slave. He had run away from his master, Philemon. And Philemon is another letter that Paul had written, perhaps giving to Anismas at this time to carry because he had chosen to return voluntarily to his master. And there were really strict penalties, harsh penalties for being a runaway. But having been born again, he was convinced that this was the right call to go back to his master and submit to him. I like what Pastor David Guzik says in his commentary. He says, Paul could have wrote about Anismas, the escaped slave whom I am sending back to his master. Instead, he called him a faithful and beloved brother and let the Colossian Christians know that Anismas was now one of you. In relationship to Jesus Christ, it was more a defining characteristic of his life than the fact he was a slave or his role in society, his past, what he had done, or what he could contribute. Paul doesn't talk about anything like that at all. He just says he is a faithful and beloved brother, and he's one of you because he's from Colossus, but also a believer now. Sometimes we say we love someone like a brother. Have you ever said that? You know, I love that guy like a brother, but. There's usually a but after we say that. Because we don't really love him like flesh and blood. We love him like a brother, but there's something that he's done, or she, that we think merits concern. But if we do we see each other as members of the body of Christ, not members of a church, but followers of Jesus as a beloved brother or sister? Or do we measure people because of something that they said, something that they did, their past, their role in society? Is that why we respect them? Or is it because we love them because they're a beloved brother and sister, someone that Jesus Christ loves and gave his life for? And that's why we love them. That's how we measure them. And it makes perfect sense that we would use physical characteristics. Say, well, who, how will I know who you are? Well, okay, I wear glasses, or I'm so tall, and this color of hair. But shouldn't our identity be, or shouldn't we identify our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters, not because of a belief that they hold? We kind of measure them by that standard. The love of Christ, that's what's to govern us. Paul wrote in his letter to Philemon, in regards to Anismas in Philemon 17, 18, he said, if you count me as a partner, receive him, Anismas, as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Paul wasn't covering for Anismas's sin, but he was willing to put right anything that Anismas had done wrong, graciously. He wanted to see restoration and fellowship. And that should mark our lives as well. Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with, with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom he received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Aristarchus, he was a Thessalonian, a worker with Paul, apparently incarcerated as well. So they were in prison together. He accompanied Paul at several times, even on voyages. John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, he's also a, an interesting character because there was a season when Paul refused to even travel with Mark, John Mark. In Acts chapter 15, Barnabas and Paul, it says they contended sharply whether Mark should go with them or not. Barnabas being his so he was the nephew of, or the cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas is like, he's going. He's going with us. And Paul's like, no way. The last time he came on our missionary journey, he departed from us. He, he bailed on us. That's not the kind of guy I want going on a trip with us. And they, it, was so, it says the contention was so sharp that they split ways. Barnabas went with Mark, but Paul went with Silas instead. It seems like, well, clearly from this passage, Paul's opinion of Mark, it changed for the better, more in line with what Barnabas thought, where he's like, hey, he's, he's a good guy as far as he's profitable for us in the ministry. And Paul said later in 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in ministry. I'm sure that Mark over the years changed. But it's obvious that Paul also changed. And isn't that great? That both of them were changing. I mean, maybe Mark was pretty solid and and Paul just had that one issue with him. But they both changed. Because Mark didn't bail out on another mission trip. And Paul's like, get that guy. He's solid. We need that guy. The Lord's going to use him. He's useful for me. Bring him with you. Welcome him. If we trust that God can transform people from death to life, from sinners to saints, through faith in Christ, then we have to believe that God can also sanctify and refine believers, pastors, brothers and sisters, that we too can be changed. And we're not just, we don't have to be who we always were, but there's hope for us to grow and to mature and to stand strong that we all need to be changed by Jesus, and he will keep changing us. Paul didn't let a bad experience with Mark permanently and negatively cover color his view of Mark moving forward. I was doing a study on sheep, and I found that sheep, they have a lot of interesting characteristics. One of them is that they have a very long-term memory for bad experiences. If they have a bad experience or a painful experience... It's like that is in the front of their mind, and they become more wary, more defensive, more skittish. And that can be us too. When we've been hurt by others, we can write them off. We can can avoid them. Paul provides a good example. Someone that we even refuse to travel with today could be useful to you in the future for ministry in God's glory. So I'm like, man, there's hope for me. It's like, oh, that guy, he's never going to change. Jesus is changing me. And it may be a slow process, but it's one that we must embrace and say, God's changing me. God can change him. God can change her. And let God do that. The answer to our problem is not that everyone else see the world like we do. Sometimes we think that would just be the answer to our problem or the contention that we have. Like Barnabas and Paul, they had a difference of opinion. One said, hey, Mark, Mark's good for the mission field. And Paul's like, no way. He's not good for the mission field. And they had this disagreement and they parted ways. And we think if, if everyone else just thought the way I did or the way I do, Things would be easier. We need to learn to give grace and to give room for other people to grow. To give them an opportunity to change. Because we need to change too. So praise the Lord for that. Paul also references a man named Jesus who was called Justice. Instead of the Greek Iosos, he was called Iustos. He was a Jewish believer. These three people mentioned here were the only Jews, he says, who were of the circumcision. So he's saying, these are the only Jews that have been serving with me at this time. It's likely out of respect for Jesus that justice, he he tweaked his name to be justice rather than Jesus. In in Hebrew, it would be Yeshua. We would say in English, Joshua. And in uh, Australia, I did check. There are some rules about what you can name your kid. In a lot of English-speaking countries, Jesus is not on the table. You, you can't name your child Jesus Christ, among other names. Any, in Australia, the rules are anything that confers a title, so a lady, sir, uh, prince, king, none of those, Jesus Christ, Satan, God, those are illegal names. You cannot name your child that and be a... Be a I guess illegal may be a little strong, but it will not be a recognized name by the government if you try to pull that one off. So any name that's obscene or confusing, those are also not uh, allowed. These workers, Paul said, they were a great comfort to him. When people are willing to work together for the Lord with love towards one another, it is a great comfort. And I am, I am delighted to say I receive great comfort from you guys, as we serve the Lord together, uh, supporting and encouraging each other. They were from different regions, but all without one heart, having been sanctified through Christ. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a great zeal for you, and those who are in Laodicea, and those who are those in Herapolis. Epaphras was a Colossian. He was a bondservant. He was a willing slave of Christ. The law of Moses made a provision that if you loved your master and the time had come for you to be set free, you could choose to override that and say, I want to remain a slave for life to my master because I love him. I think it's pretty awesome that it's in the law. that It's because you love the guy. You haven't been coerced at all, but because you love your master and you'd rather be under your master than away from him, you are permitted to become a bondservant. This man, Epaphras, he's described as always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Laboring fervently, it comes from the Greek word that we get our word agonize from. He agonized in prayer over these people because he loved them. That word means to struggle, literally to compete for a prize, to contend, to endeavor to accomplish something. When you think of all the different jobs that slaves had in the Roman Empire, it's like his job was to pray. He agonized in prayer for for other people, He had great zeal for them. He cared for them, so he prayed for them. And I find that people that I care for, I will pray for. And he had great zeal for them and those in the area. I ask you, is there anything that you're zealous about? Anything that fires you up in a good way? Not just makes you angry. You could be zealous about bad things, I suppose, too. But something that you like, like, I could get excited about this. You start talking about it, you're talking a little faster, even your cheeks start flushing a bit, you're pretty excited, and yet the volume of your voice begins to rise a bit. You're like, wow, I know to stay away from that subject the next time we talk, or, or tell me more about that thing that you know so much about, or that you're really passionate about. There's some great examples of zeal in the Bible, Phineas. In Numbers 25, there was a plague that broke out among the people because of idolatry, and he administered justice on the perpetrators, and God saw that, and he says, that guy has zeal for me, and he will never lack a man to stand before me forever. Jesus was zealous, right? When He saw people buying and selling the animals in the temple courts, he was stirred up, and he made a whip of cords, and he drove out the animals, those who were selling things. And he says, quit using this place as a thoroughfare. The zeal, and they re- remember, the zeal for my house has eaten me up. He was zealous for the glory of God, that this was a special place. It wasn't a zoo. It wasn't a place to make money. It was a place to worship God and to pray. Zeal alone doesn't make you right, right? You can be zealous and be wrong about something. But it's always right to be zealous about God and his glory. Prayer is a battle. It is a wrestle. It is a fight. It's a fight to, to persevere in. And it's a fight against the flesh that, that is sleepy and tired and wants to do something else. Satan would rather us not pray because it mobilizes God to do his wonders. You think, well, what did Epaphras pray? And it's an awesome prayer. He prayed that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Ephesians 6, it says, We are enabled through the Holy Spirit to stand, having done all to stand. Even when the enemy is attacking us, we can stand with the armor of God. And standing, it has the... Uh, Implication of being upright, that you're living righteously, that your feet are on a good, solid foundation. You've got traction, and we stand on Christ and the Word of God, and that we keep doing it. If you're standing, it's something you're presently doing and you're continuing to do. They were to stand, it says, perfect and complete. We think of perfect as being flawless, like a perfect 10, top marks. But perfect, it means to be mature or fully grown up. So he's like, I want these folks to be fully grown, to grow to maturity so that they'll be fruitful. And that word uh, complete, to satisfy, accomplish, and finish. So he's like, I want them to grow in in maturity, to fulfill all of God's will, not lacking behind. Now, there's people we call late bloomers. And spiritually speaking, it's better to bloom late than never. So being a late bloomer is okay. That's fine. Uh, Are there people that you pray for? Are there people that you pray and you pray this, that they would stand perfect and complete in all the will of God? And this is something that we should desire for ourselves. If we're going to pray it for someone else and we don't really care for that for ourselves, it's hypocritical, it's a bit silly, So let's desire this. Pray this for yourself. Pray this for others that they would stand perfect and complete. And you think of the the persecution that was occurring in the world and how it would have been very, I guess, a tendency to pray that the circumstances would change. But see, God wants people to change in those circumstances. He actually uses those circumstances to change a person and to mature them and to cause them to persevere. And in seeing that process... Other people are strengthened. Other people are exhorted to stand. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea in Nymphis, and the church that is in his house. Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Luke and Demas, they also send their greeting to believers in Colossus. Isn't this pretty amazing? Paul's in prison, he's in chains, and he has all these folks that he is networking and connected with. Luke, he's the penman of the Gospel of Luke as well as the Book of Acts, one of Paul's travel companions, the beloved physician. Because he's not mentioned among the three Jews that were spoken of before, it's inferred he is a Gentile. Just a little aside. Demas, he's notable. At one time, he was called a, a faithful fellow laborer. But if you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, we see a changed condition. Here, he doesn't say anything bad or good about him, just that Demas sends his greetings. But we'll see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, that there was a change that occurred. Later in his walk, 2 Timothy 4 verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Demas is really a contrast to Anismas. Demas started well, but he forsook Paul. He stopped laboring in ministry, it says, because of his love for the world. He loved the things of the world more than the love of God. And the Bible places the love of the world and the things of the world in opposition to Christ. In 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. No more is said about Demas. We don't know if he was an apostate, just backsliding, Uh, but... So an apostate is someone who departs from the faith, like a permanent departure. We don't know. There's no value to debate exactly what happened with him. God's the only one who knows the hearts of men. But this mention of Demas in 2 Timothy, it's a good warning to us that if we have started the race, let us also finish the race well, not to be sidetracked by the love of the world, the cares of this world, the pursuit of wealth or riches. Paul urges the Colossians to greet the believers in Laodicea, Nymphus, and the church that was in his house. It was common for churches to meet, uh, or the church members to meet in houses because they didn't have uh, set-aside homes. This is still common in all over the world today. And it's no more or less spiritual to meet in a dedicated church building or in a house or in a paddock or in a field. All these are sanctified by the Lord because it's He who sanctifies us. Um, We could be in the back of an industrial park and it's still, we can praise the Lord. We can lift our voices to him as one. It's interesting to me that the the reasons for meeting in a a house church or in a house have changed over the years. There's people in countries close to the gospel, they meet in a house because they're worshiping in secret and they want the freedom to preach the word of God without government interference or control. There's some that meet in a home almost to push back against the trappings of, of what they see as traditional church and, uh, I, I guess, or denominationalism or something, where it's a, almost a push to get back to roots. But whether you meet in a building set aside for that purpose or in your home, the Bible should be read in the home. We should be praising the Lord in our homes. Let's do all with thanksgiving to the Lord for his glory. He encouraged the church there. He's like, hey, read this and then pass it along to the Laodiceans to read. And I love that this, this letter, it made it to Coloss, and now we are able to read it and to get many blessings from it. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. This salutation by my own hand, Paul. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Archippus, he's mentioned in the greeting of Philemon as our fellow soldier. So he was working. He was laboring in the gospel, a minister. And Paul really calls him out in front of everyone, Um, not in a bad way, but he exhorts him. He says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you would fulfill it. He confirms that God has given Archippus a ministry. And he seemed to be in need of a gentle exhortation to remember what God had given him, to take heed to it, so to be about it, be mindful of it, and then to take action to fulfill it, to complete it, to work on that thing. He wasn't to be slack concerning the fulfillment of what God had given him to do. Now you think, well, what could have hindered him from fulfilling this ministry? Well, maybe he was waiting for someone else to take the lead. Maybe there were people who weren't really on board with what ideas he had, or he was waiting for some more support from people, or he was waiting for a sign. I don't know. I have no idea what would have hindered him, but it seemed that I don't know that he was doubting that he had received the ministry, but Paul put that in his mind again. He says, take heed to the ministry God's given you. He's given you a ministry, and then see that you're doing that ministry, seeing that you're taking steps to do that thing that God's called you to do. Do you know that as a member of the body of Christ, God's given you a ministry? God's given you things to do. So you too are to take heed to the ministry that God's called you to. And this passage that we're reading today, we see a lot of examples of what this ministry could be. And you don't have to be an ordained minister or a missionary or have uh, financial support or ordination by some body to do that ministry that God's called you to do right now. Trusting and obeying God and the role that He has you in your family, in a business, Teaching, encouraging, laboring in prayer. That's what people have been about in this passage. Giving, comforting, exhorting, being useful in ministry. That's your ministry. To comfort and to encourage. To edify fellow believers in the church. To walk in wisdom with those who are outside. Saying things that are gracious. Seasoned with salt. Do you see that as your ministry? These are aspects of the ministry God's given you. Once you know that God's called you to do something, are you doing that thing? Are you working towards fulfilling it so that you can say, I have fulfilled the thing that God has called me to do. Not because it's in me to do it, but God gave it to me and God's helped me to do it. So all the glory goes to him. One thing I've learned, building projects do not finish themselves. Wouldn't it be great If you could just lay the foundation, walk away, come back, and it's plumbed, the walls are up, insulated, all those tough jobs are just done. You know, the electricity's already run, it's been written off by the the council, all the paperwork's in order. No, there was a time in my house where the skirting wasn't on for years. Right, there was so much work that went into building and painting, and prepping. that I was like, ah, oh, you need a little bit of a break. But the job wasn't done. It wasn't fulfilled. So work to fulfill it. Don't assume that job's just gonna finish itself. Because you're still in progress. Your life is being refined and sanctified. And there's intentional effort. Yes, it's God's work. He's the one who works in both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But you need to cooperate with him and take intentional steps to work towards his goals for your life. Because as long as your will and his will are at odds and you're not in agreement with him, there will be trouble and a lack of fruitfulness where there could be fruitfulness. Fruitfulness that God has ordained for you to have for his glory. The ministry God's given you is not for somebody else to do. You're the only one who can do that. And it's not in your own strength that you can accomplish anything. But through Christ, we can do all things because he strengthens us. Remember when Jesus spoke to Peter and he said, feed my sheep. Three times he said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then what did Peter go? He's like, what about him? He said, what is that to you? You follow me. You do what I've told you to do. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about what his job is supposed to be. You do the thing I've told you to do. You feed my sheep. So if you can have crystallized in your mind the thing that God's calling you to do in this trial, in this difficulty, you do that one thing. Not waiting for someone else to take the lead. You do it because God's given it to you. He's given you this life, this new life, And you, we're called to be faithful. God will help you. The Holy Spirit will lead you. You don't need approval or applause from men to do the thing that God's calling you to do. Because when you're filled with the Spirit and being led by Him, you will be walking in step and coordinated with the rest of the body because you're part of that body and Jesus is the head. So the arm won't be doing one thing and the leg won't be trying to run the other direction. When we're being led by the Spirit, we will be working together in your sphere, in your family, in your workplace, where God has you, and doing the thing he's called you to do. It's so great that we can be part of a profitable ministry in the body, that we could do anything profitable for God, that he would do something profitable in us and use us is awesome. Paul's life provides an example of someone determined to fulfill the ministry that God had given him, right? He's in prison for preaching the gospel to the Jews. In chains, he was not free to travel. He couldn't go back to all the churches that he helped facilitate and grow. He couldn't disciple believers outside. But what did he do? He prayed. He wrote to them. He connected with the people that he could in prison— and he sent them out with messages even to places he'd never been yet, and he had never been to Colossus by this point. Yet, they were on his heart, and so he wrote a letter, and he sent Tychicus and Anismas with this letter to convey his thoughts, to encourage them. So even chains, prison, didn't stop Paul from working towards that goal to fulfill the ministry that God's forgiven him according to all the will of God. He seized opportunities when he spoke to governors, when he spoke to the jailer, his, his, the other prisoners, right? They heard him, it says, singing praises to God after he was beaten and thrown into the dungeon. He seized those opportunities to speak gracious words, words seasoned with salt. And he says, uh, well, one thing, if you're a bit reluctant to do that, that thing that God's calling you to do, to really engage in the ministry that he has for you, you're not alone. There's a lot of people in the Bible who are very reluctant, who loved God, who trusted in him, that were, they dragged their feet when it came to doing the thing he called them to do. Moses, he didn't just like, right on. He was champing at the bit early in his life, but by 80, he was like, hmm, get somebody else. I don't speak well. I got issues. Joshua. You know, don't be afraid, Joshua. Fear not. Be courageous. Gideon. Many times he's asking God for signs. Like, all right, if you're still afraid, take your servant and go down and look. And he took his servant because he was afraid. Saul, right? They're He's ordained to be king, the one that God's chosen, and he's hiding in the stuff at his coronation. He's hiding among boxes and things. Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're like, I don't even want to say what God's called me to say. But it's like, it was like a fire in my bones. I just, I had to act and say, Jonah, pretty reluctant, right? Saul, before he was Paul. Ananias. He was called, and this is the one time we read about him, hey, go, uh, go pray with this guy. Go visit Saul of Tarsus and pray with him. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And he's like, Lord, I've heard some bad things about this guy. I really don't want to go. Go. So he went and he prayed with him. Saul, he was breathing out murder. He wanted to kill Christians, and God transformed him. So then he's saving people through the gospel. So your reluctance, it's not a hindrance uh, when we choose to place our faith in Christ. Looking to ourselves, we are not sufficient, but in him we have all sufficiency. He says, remember my chains, grace be with you, amen. I like what Barclay wrote. He said, Paul's reference to his sufferings are not pleas for sympathy. They are his claims to authority, the guarantees of his right to speak. He was reminding them of remember where I am so pray for me and make the most of the freedom you have to make to to be in the, be about the Lord's business and to be standing strong in the will of God and all the will of God for you Could you guys turn please to Matthew chapter 5 verse 13 through 17 Paul had such an, uh, an amazing perspective that he saw himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't a prisoner who was falsely accused, and he didn't identify with that. He identified as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, like Jesus is my jailer. He's the one who has me here. I'm in the will of God, and I'm going to serve him right here. I'm safe in his hands. And he had a totally uncertain future, right, going to Rome, Uh, going before Caesar Nero, and what that would hold. His words were seasoned with salt. And Jesus, speaking to his followers, also spoke of being the salt of the earth in Matthew 5.13. Jesus said, "'You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world.'" A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus came to earth as the light of the world. He spoke with grace, his words seasoned with salt as the glory of God shone through his life. He didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets, he came to fulfill them, to fulfill all that was said concerning him. He had a ministry that God had given him. He knew that he had been sent by the Father to seek and save the lost, and that he would lay down his life on Calvary. And when his hour drew near, He set his face like a flint to go towards Jerusalem, knowing that that's the place that he would be crucified, that he would lay down his life to atone for the sins of the world. He did not allow anything to hinder him from the work he knew God had called him to do. And sometimes we struggle to know what what God's will is, because there may not be a specific directive that we see in Scripture concerning our particular case But know that when we do these things, God is called to us generally, loving one another as as he has loved us, trusting in him, praying without ceasing. As we do these things that are God's explicitly revealed will for us, we can trust that he will also give us guidance step by step in those situations, in those roles, day by day, moment by moment. You may not have a store of, of confidence that you can draw on that's great. Say, all right, I can do this. Just moment by moment, reliance upon God that he is going to supply in your moment of need everything you need to stand perfect and complete in the will of God. So we are going to take time to remember and proclaim proclaim the Lord's death through the receiving of the bread. It represents his body broken for us in the cup, symbolic of his shed blood. May our hearts be filled with gratitude for what Jesus has done. That he was faithful to complete the ministry set before him. And we have received so much blessing because of his obedience. The forgiveness. The adoption as children of God. To be born again through faith. That we've been made righteous. We have righteous standing with God now. That we're members of the body of Christ. We're one in him. And that he's given you a ministry to fulfill. And that he's going to help you fulfill it. Everything we have and all we are is by his grace. That we could stand when we were dead. We were dead, but now we stand. And we can keep standing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to all of us. Thank you for Jesus being our Savior, for his obedience to go to the cross. Thank you for his shed blood and his body that was broken for us. And that you have made us one in Christ, spanning continents and cultures and ethnicities. Men, women, and young people, children. Lord, you have sanctified us by your grace and drawn us together. May we worship you. May our hearts be filled with gratitude. Instead of saying, I can't, Lord, help us to say you have and that you will do everything you've promised. Lord, I pray if there are hearts of unbelief in us that, that, that are not trusting of you, not obeying you, I pray that you would draw us back and you would turn our eyes to you again to see you lifted up, that you would draw us to yourself, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, I pray that we would have communion and fellowship not just here in this place, but at all times, that we would walk in wisdom to those who are without, on the outside, that they might be brought in to know Jesus Christ, to be made complete in him. Lord, thank you for all that you've accomplished, and uh, fill our hearts with praise in Jesus' name. Amen.